Hey guys, do you love candles as much as I love candles? If you do, you gotta check out Circle E Candles. I'm telling you, their candles are absolutely my favorites. I have been buying candles from Circle E Candles for over 10 years, and my house always smells amazing. They're triple scented. They're also always running specials, so there's always a good discount on something, or if you buy a certain amount, you can get free shipping. I'm gonna add their link in my show notes so you can go check them out yourself. And guys, seriously, this place is legit. They ship all over the United States. So check them out. They're fantastic. And I wouldn't steer you wrong. You know that. So hey, if I love them, I know you're going to love them. Circle E Candles. You really have to get yourself some. And also let them know you heard about them from me. Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where we get into people's heads and find out how their choices in life has affected them. My name is Leslie Fear. I'm your host. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with Maria DiLorenzo, and she is someone who contacted me through a website because she said, you know what? Hey, I know you like true crime. Would this interest you? And I tell you guys, this interests me. She has her own website. It's called Beyond the Crime. She's also a true crime writer. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I've been looking at your website. I think I told you before we started recording, I'm more and more impressed with what you do and what you've accomplished. I think you used to write poetry and now you went to serial killers. So... Yeah, <laughs> total off of 360 there. Yeah. <laughs> and specifically, the serial killer I wanted to talk to you about, and we can talk about everyone you've covered a little bit if you'd like. Um, his name is Maxim Gelman, and he's a man currently serving 225-year sentence for murdering four people and injuring five during a two-day stabbing spree mid-February in 2011. Great. And that's my thing. How did you go from... <laughs> being a poet to interviewing killers. So tell me everything. (laughs) So the way it happened, I mean, I never said, okay, I'm going to write true crime. Like I never even like thought about it when I was going for my MFA. You know, I got my MFA in creative writing. I've always been a writer, you know, so that's something that I pursued. And I finished my MFA January of 2011, I got my MFA in creative writing with a concentration in poetry. And literally a couple weeks after that, that's when Max's story happened. And I lived in Staten Island at the time. And this happened in Brooklyn, which, you know, not too far from Staten Island in New York. And it actually happened in Sheepside Bay, Brooklyn, which is really close to the area where I grew up. It's maybe like, I would say, 10, 15 minute car ride. So I, you know, I was very familiar with that neighborhood. And I'd gone to high school, you know, close by to where it all happened. So immediately, I became invested in it. And my first thought was, Oh, my God, do I know this person? Because, you know, we are kind of close in age. Right. And it it turned out I didn't know him. But we, we knew some of the same people just from, you know, living in the same neighborhood. Wow. And it just hit close to home. It's like one of those things that, you know, and she said, hey, that sort of thing doesn't happen. It's a really residential area. And he was going around doing this in broad daylight. So 
you know, it wasn't something that, you know, was an isolated incident. He just started doing this in broad daylight and continued for 28 hours um, until he was apprehended in Times Square. So this story just kind of got my attention, and I just wanted to know, like, who he was and why he did what he did. Um, you know, at first, you know, I was just talking to people about his story, um, close friends and people who are also writers. And eventually, one of my friends had said to me a couple months after, this was around probably like April, May of 2011, you know, why don't you just write to him? You know, why don't you just like, maybe you could write his story or you know, get some answers. And, right. and Which is so cool that you, <laughs> you did know? that. I mean, what? I mean, I, I don't know if I'd have thought of that, but maybe I would have. Good for you. So what happened after that? So basically, um, the idea was in my head and I was like, well, maybe I should write to him. I, you know, I've never written to anybody in prison. I had no true knowledge of the prison system at this point. Just, you know, basic stuff of like what you hear, right. you know? Yeah. But no true experience or knowledge, and I didn't even know how to go about writing a letter to him. But, you know, with some research on on the Internet and figured out where he was in Rikers Island. And um, I went ahead and I wrote a letter and just said, hey, you know, I'm interested in your story. I would like to write something about you. I wasn't sure at that point if it would actually turn into a book. I mean, I've never at that point, I've never written a book, so I had no idea. But I just knew, like, intuitively, I felt like I had to speak to him. And I had to understand why he did what he did. Right, right. So, okay, so what you do is you go ahead and you do your research, find out how to write to someone in prison, which is kind of kind of cool. I, li- I like it, like it a lot. Now, did you hear from him right away? What happened after that? No, I didn't. Um, a couple of months went by before I actually got a letter from him. And the reason for that was because while he was awaiting trial, he was actually being transferred back and forth from Bellevue um, for psych evaluations and Rikers Island. So he was, you know, just being transferred back and forth. And I don't know what happened. Maybe my letter just kind of got lost in the shuffle of things. But eventually he did write back, but he didn't say whether or not he, you know, wanted to do this story or, you know, want to speak to me about his story. He just kind of said, thank you for the letter. And he sent me a couple of drawings and I didn't know how to take it, but I just continued to write to him and express interest in speaking with him. And then as months went on, he started to talk to me a little bit, but he made it clear that he was very limited to what he could say to me until after his sentencing. Okay. So yeah, that makes sense. His lawyer didn't really want him speaking to people like me, (laughs) which is considered media. And so we just kept it very... You know, I didn't really get much information from him at that point. And these are like handwritten letters, right? That's exactly how you're communicating. There's no phone calls at this point, correct? Right. These are just letters back and forth. Um, He didn't start calling me until the following year. This was after his sentencing because he pled guilty, so there was no trial. So he pled guilty, and he was sentenced in January of 2012. And I was actually there. So, like, at that point, I started to attend all of his court hearings. And oh, wow. Which, yeah. yeah, there weren't many because, again, um, he pled guilty. But I was there at his sentencing in both Brooklyn and Manhattan. And I was there in 
the back, taking notes. And so I was very present throughout this entire case. Right, right. Wow. Okay, so he goes through the sentencing after he's pled guilty, and he's now serving that 225-year sentence. So where is he now? Um, currently, he's in Wendy Correctional Facility, which is up in the Buffalo area, but he's moved around a lot within the last 10 years. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Facility. Gotcha. Well, he's probably in maximum security, I would I would assume. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you start interviewing him in person, right? I started interviewing him in person. Um, the first time I went to go see him, it was probably like a week after his sentencing in January of 2012. He had called me probably like right after his sentencing and, you know, just invited me up to Rikers and just said, hey, would you want to meet and um, you can interview me. And I said, okay. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So I went to Rikers Island, which, again, I've never been to a prison before. I've never been to a jail so the whole experience was really out of, you know, my comfort zone, I would say. Uh, yeah, you were writing poetry. You were not writing about murder. So yeah, that's a exactly. big, that's a big jump. Yeah. So what was he like? I mean, psychologically, I mean, I know you're not a psychologist, but I mean, you know, human behavior probably enough to know, was he a normal looking man to you? Yeah, you know, I mean, tell you me. wouldn't think that he had killed four people just in passing, like he doesn't look you know, like, I don't know. I feel like when we think of, you know, murderers or, or whatever, like we have this idea that, oh, they look like monsters or... Well, they look like Charles Manson or somebody crazy-eyed like that, right. you know? Yeah. But no, I mean, he, he looked, you know, just like any regular person, <laughs> except wow. he's in jail. So you started talking. Did you go right into, hey, dude, why did you do this? What led you to this? Was it, you know, was it drugs? Was it an anger problem? Was it schizophrenia? What was it, do you think, that made him do this? Well, there's a lot of things that come into play with why. I mean, initially, when I first started interviewing him on Rikers Island, that first interview was maybe 40 minutes long. It was really short. So I just had him walk me through like what actually happened that day. We didn't really get into like why this happened until months later when, you know, I was investing a lot of time speaking to him over the phone. I probably have hundreds and hundreds of hours of phone interviews with him. Yeah. I mean, this was over like a course of this whole process took me eight years between interviewing and writing. So I have a lot of hours. Yeah. A lot of hours of, you know, phone calls with him and then other in-person interviews throughout the course of that time as well. So, I mean, the why it happened, you know, at that point in his life, he was, so he was a drug dealer in Brooklyn, right? So he was already kind of like leading this life of crime where, you know, that's how he was making money. He was making a living and he was, doing well according to him and he was just caught up in this lifestyle though you know it, you know it comes with a price you right know, yeah like oh i'm a drug dealer and life is great um no like you know you have to think of like the people that you're dealing with and um you're always kind of walking around almost with a target on your back whether people who are trying to rob you or people who are trying to turn you in or the police you know so he was kind of getting to a point in his life where he had become really paranoid and worried that, you know, he believed the feds were following him. Whether or not that's true, I mean, I take everything with a grain of salt, right? So, I mean, this is what he has told me. It's possible. Who knows? 
he felt that the feds were following him and he was just getting to like a point where he wanted to get away from Brooklyn and he wanted to go lay low for a little bit just to, you know, if they were following him, you know, he just wanted to be out of sight. So he booked a trip to the Dominican Republic Mm. and he needed his passport. So he had a plane ticket. He was ready to go, but his mother had his passport. So that's how he ended up in that situation with waking his mother up at five in the morning for the passport and then getting into this argument with his stepfather, which then led to him murdering him. But I mean, his relationship with his stepfather just wasn't good. Right. Um, So, yeah, and that leads me to who were the people that he injured and who were the people that actually were killed? So he killed his stepfather. He went on after that to kill... So Yelena Bolchenko, she was a friend and someone he had a romantic relationship with. Mm -hmm. Um, Not necessarily his girlfriend, but they, you know, they did have a romantic sexual relationship and they were friends. So he killed her mother because when he went to her house looking for her, he, you know, the mother was just, you know, bad timing, wrong place, wrong time. Um, He wasn't targeting her mother. It just so happened he showed up at her house looking for, he was looking for Elena, and the mother answered the door, and in his head, he thought, well, if I can't get to Elena, and that was, you know, someone he was targeting, this will hurt her, you know, in the event I don't get. So that that was, like, his way of thinking, you know? Right. Had they, like, had an argument or something? Is that why he was thinking he couldn't get to her? Um, I mean, there's a couple reasons as to why he was going after Elena. He had, you know, some personal reasons as to why... But, you know, she was targeted, and he killed her mother, and then he kept returning to the house throughout the day. He was driving around the neighborhood. He had some other people in his mind that he wanted to kill, and those people happened not to be home. (laughs) So he just decided, since he couldn't get his passport, it just really, and I'm sure there's way more to the story than what what I'm, you know, cliff noting here, but he was on a rampage. He was pissed. He was mad. And yeah, I mean, he figured like, because when he killed his stepfather, his mother had called the cops on him. She witnessed it. And, you know, she ended up calling the cops on him. And so then he took off and he ended up driving out to Long Island, which is a couple hours away. And then in his head, he thought, well, I'm going to go away for killing my stepfather. I might as well get to everybody else who he felt wronged by, who wronged him in some way. Which is horrible way of thinking about it. But yeah, wow. Okay, so it's amazing to me how people that seem of sound mind, obviously he couldn't be, just go off and just lose their ever-loving heads. I don't understand that, but I know you probably know him way better than me, of course. But when you were sitting in front of him, were you ever like intimidated or scared? Or what were your thoughts when you were just talking to him? Um, I mean, the first time I went to go meet him, I mean, there's, I wouldn't be normal to say well, yeah. I wasn't a little bit intimidated, you know, between the setting and, Absolutely. you know, I didn't know anything about him except he killed four people, injured five others. I mean, that's, that's all I knew about him and that uh, he lived close by to me from where I grew up and, um, you know, I didn't really know much else. So, you know, I was just sort of like, I don't know how he's going to like respond to me. I don't know if he's like, is he like that impulsive that, you know, he would harm me. Like I had no idea going into that first interview right. what to expect, you know? if he would, like, curse me out. I mean, because at his sentencing, too, I mean, he cursed out the judge, you know? <laughs> so, 
Well, he clearly has anger problems. Let's just be honest. You know, something's on. And, you know, he already had a tumultuous relationship with his stepfather. So that set him off. And then after that, he kind of just lost his mind, it sounds like. So when he went back to his girlfriend's house or the one that he had that relationship with, did he finally get to her? What happened after that? Yeah, he did. So after driving around the neighborhood for, I mean, it was... He killed her mother around 10, 10 30 in the morning, and he kept circling back. He went back to her house a couple times, and then eventually at around like 4 o'clock in the afternoon or so, he passed by her house again, and she was outside. Elena was outside, and she was on the phone with the police, actually, or ambulance, because she had discovered her mother oh. dead inside of the house. Mm from when he had stabbed her earlier that morning. So she was outside frantic, crying hysterically on the phone. He saw her and he pulled into her driveway and he had it in his head. I'm, you know, I'm going to kill her. So walked up to her. He had the knife in his sleeve and just went up to her and, and stabbed her oh in the stomach. And, and did, oh, so she died. Well, she didn't die right away. So he stabbed her in the stomach and she fell to the ground. And at this point, too, I mean, you have to think it's, it's a Friday afternoon in Brooklyn. And, you know, some neighbors were watching. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, where the heck are the neighbors? What the heck is going on? Right. So, I mean, she tried to, like, reach out to one of the neighbors. But he had this knife, you know, um, this, like, chef knife, you know. So there wasn't really much that people could do to, you know, disarm him. So after he stabbed her the first time, she fell to the ground and he got back into his car because now the police were coming. I mean, people were calling the cops. She had called the police herself upon finding her mother. So as he was reversing from the driveway, he wasn't sure if he had actually killed her. So in his head, he thought, you know, wanted to be sure. So Mm. he actually got out of the car and he stabbed her again, like in the throat region. Oh, my and, gosh. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he took off. And um, he ended up leaving the car in the middle of her street to block traffic because the cops were actually coming and the ambulance was coming. So he left the car in the middle of the street. He got his keys and he threw them. So kind of give himself more time. That was sort of his, like, his reasoning there. If, you know, he blocked the street, it would be hard for for the police to catch up with him. And then he ran down to the corner at the stop sign. There was a car stopped there, and that's when he started to carjack people. So he, um, yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Right. So he ended up carjacking. um, His his name was Arthur DiCrescenza. So he ended up living, sustained some injuries, but he ended up living. But uh, Max stabbed him, stole his car, and now he's, like, gunning it, right, because he thinks the police are after him, which they are. So he's going, you know, he's blowing stop signs, he's blowing red lights. Mind you, I mean, this is Brooklyn, you know, so it's, you know, really crowded, and people are coming home from school, work, wherever at this time of day. So as he's driving, um, he actually ended up hitting someone. It was a hit and run. He hit this man, Stephen Tannenbaum, and killed him. Oh, no. He ended up dying. That's so sad. It's bad enough he killed even one person. That's just horrific. Then he killed the woman after she found her own mother dead, killed her, hijacked someone. He ends up living, thank goodness, still has injuries. Then he just hits someone, just hits someone probably just in his way. I just cannot fathom. So after that point, he thought to himself, well, 
you know, the police are going to find him. So he went to an area in Brooklyn. It's called the Dead Tracks. So he was a graffiti artist. And a lot of the time, graffiti artists, they spend a lot of time doing graffiti by the trains and, and whatnot. So there's this area in Brooklyn called the Dead Tracks because it's where freight trains pass by. Right. Kind of near the Brooklyn College area. So he went down over there because he was able to hide and kind of be out of sight under this overpass. Gotcha. So, okay. At, you know, they had now helicopters were looking for him. Mm. You know, there was a huge search at this point. So he had stayed there for a few hours until it got dark out. And then he started to walk on foot. At this point, it was dark. And, you know, it's also the middle of February, so it's really cold. Right. right so, yeah. yeah. So he was on foot. He had tried to go to another person's house. He, he had it in his head. It was a former friend. He was going to kill him and take his car. But that guy just wasn't there. So well, thank God. After that, yeah, he ended up taking a dollar van and going towards, like, the downtown Brooklyn area, and then he continued to carjack more people as the night went on. He carjacked a cab driver, and then after that, he carjacked a man named Sheldon Pottinger. And he stabbed them as well, but they ended up surviving. Oh, well, good. I'm glad they survived. My goodness. Can you imagine a crazed lunatic coming up to me and grabbing my car? I mean, especially, hey, take my car, but don't injure me. I'm giving you my car. What more do you want? You know, these people probably aren't even fighting him. Yeah, one of them did. Um, Shelton Pottinger tried to fight him off. And, like, Max is driving, and he has the guy in the passenger seat, and he's trying to fight him off. And then, like, Shelton Pottinger, like, jumped jumped out of the car and it was like this crazy thing I, from like a movie it's yeah. you know the way yeah. it's described to me so wow well let me ask you this you're sitting in front of him you guys are interviewing you know he's now talking to you it's taken a while for him to, to get to that point but he's talking to you he's confessing everything even to you do you feel like he has remorse do you feel like he thinks he's still not justified do you think he he would have liked to have killed more what is your take on that well, I mean, I've known Max for about 10 years now, right? So when I first started interviewing him, I did not see any sort of remorse. It, it wasn't something that really? was there. Mm. It was more or less he's sorry he got caught, oh, wow. but he felt that the people deserved it, minus the hit and run. He always felt that person was innocent. He never intended to kill that person. Right. So for a long time, I mean, when I was interviewing him, you know, he never really expressed much remorse. Mm -hmm. However, I mean, in more like, I would say like recently, he's become, I guess, religious, which is common for people in prison. Sure, sure. Whether or not there is like any sort of truth, I mean, I would like to think maybe he has changed and matured, but then from a psychological perspective, a lot of the time, like when you read about people who are this violent or, you know, they suffer from um, a disordered way of thinking, really, whether they're sociopaths, psychopaths, you know, antisocial personality right. disorder, whatever label you want to put on it. Um, there's something called like burnout where they kind of don't feel inclined to, you know, want to commit the same crimes that they did when, you know, they were younger. And this is something that happens. So I don't know if that has something to do with it, if he's just been in prison so long that mm-hmm. he really has become reflective. I mean, it's really hard to say, but he's definitely not the same person as he went in I feel there's definitely been a lot of maturity right. to a certain extent to a certain extent I would say it's like one of those things it's hard to say is it genuine or is it just you know the prison right. kind of broke him in Absolutely. you know and now he's serving a 225 year sentence I have a feeling there's no way he'll ever get parole 
Yeah, I mean, he's not facing a parole board. I think his parole date is like 2217, 2218, something ridiculous. Yeah, that was going to say, yeah, <laughs> way beyond you yeah. and I, or, or him actually, too. Okay, so we have him, and his name is Maxim Gelman, and that doesn't sound very American. Is he from another country? Um, he's, he was born in uh, Ukraine. Okay. The more we talk about this, the more this is jarring my memory. It seems like I remember something about this way back then, because I do think it made the national news, too. It did. It did. And he was actually, he was, he, there were a few TV shows made about him over the last few years. One of them, um, I guess like the big one, was The Killer Speaks. He did oh. the first 48, The Killer Speaks. That's okay. on, um, I think it's A&E, I want to say. Right. And like I said, yeah, I mean, all of them, they all mirror the same kind of rage, if nothing else. They all seem to have that same, whether it's, like you said, psychotic or schizophrenic or whatever it is, they all have some of those same characteristics of they just lose their mind. And sometimes a lot of them don't even remember what happened. And I don't know if that ever happened to him at all. Um, no, I mean, he, his memory is intact. Okay. All his right. memory is yeah. definitely yeah. intact. But, you know, he kind of just had, like, a psychotic break. I mean, his crimes, they were really impulsive. I mean, it's not like, like a serial killer will plan out a resting period in between victims and a lot of the time right. they'll stalk or whatever. But Max, you know, he didn't plan on doing that on February 11th. It just sort of happened. And then it spiraled. And, you know, it was entirely impulsive. Um, entirely reckless, obviously, um, caused a a lot of harm to a lot of people. Well, and his lifestyle just kind of made it that much more of a gateway to doing this. You know, just the fact that he was already around not great people and, you know, life just doesn't seem as precious, maybe. Let me ask you something, though. You also interviewed the Happy Face Killer and Keith, Keith Jefferson. Yes. And I was like, holy crap. So tell me about him. He wrote you a letter and you have it up on your blog. It's like a two page letter. And I have to say, he's not a bad writer. I mean, he kind of tells you how it is, but he says it in a very precise way. So tell me about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Keith and I have been corresponding since March. So only a couple months. Okay. And. So what I do in my blog, I reach out to people and it's kind of like whoever wants to talk to me, you know. But that's so cool, though. I mean, Maria, to me, it's fascinating to hear their stories because some of them probably come from just normal backgrounds and they just get involved with the wrong people. Some of them probably come from horrific backgrounds and they just are more geared to be these kinds of people. You don't really know which one's which. So did you just start writing him first and then did you ever interview him? Yeah, so I've been interviewing Keith for um, since March, really. Okay, so okay. he responded to my letter with the phone call. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah, because I leave my phone number if they just want to call me, if they want to write. They all have like preferred methods of communication. Sometimes they email me, sometimes they call, sometimes they write. So right, right. I had a text message once from one guy. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even know they could text. This was in a federal prison. I was like, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so he had called me, and he was interested in speaking to me specifically about the first murder that he committed, which was Tanya Bennett. And that case is, I mean, if you were reading it on my website, there's 
so many layers to it. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I didn't read everything. I read his letters, and he went in to tell you certain things. But I'd rather you tell my listeners kind of what you can sum it up however you want to do it. But tell my listeners kind of what he's in prison for. So Keith Jesperson, the happy face killer, um, he's in prison for killing eight women Ugh. from 1990 to 1995. Wow. So, yes, he was a truck driver. And he would pick up women. Some of them were prostitutes. Some of them were just kind of looking for a ride. One of them was his girlfriend. The first murder was someone he just met at a bar. So, I mean, it was somewhat random, I guess. But all of them were women. And he would kill them by strangling them. And, yeah. So, did he tell you, did he grow up in a really bad environment? Did he tell you why? Did you guys even go there? I know you've only been talking to him for a couple months. So... Do you know any of that yet? I mean, he grew up in a seemingly, um, I mean, we didn't really get into his childhood too much, but just from like the later part of his life, like he did go on to get married. He had a family. He had a steady job as a truck driver. And, you know, so on the surface, it looked normal. Right. Right. Yeah. So then he actually ended up um, getting divorced. And that's when it all kind of started to happen with him where he, you know, he had described it as him just feeling really angry at the world. And he was just kind of in this state of, you know, perpetual like anger. And he had gone divorced and his ex-wife had taken his children. And the person that he was having an affair with, which was, you know, kind of the reason why his marriage ended in the first place, um, she had left him. Mm. So he was just kind of in a bad place um, mentally, I guess you could say. And he had met Tanya Bennett at this bar in Oregon and brought her back to his place. And it just didn't go the way that he thought it was going to go. That That's how he described it to me, where he thought that they were going to have sex. She was really just not into it. And something, you know, this conversation he described it just wasn't going the way he had wanted it to. And he just lost it. And he ended up striking her, punching her in the face multiple times. Mm. It got to the point, he said, where, you know, he had done damage. And he thought, well, you know, if I go to the police, then I'm going to get arrested. If I bring her to the hospital, I'm going to get arrested. So he figured, you know, I should kill her. And that's what he did. So he strangled her. And then he took her body to the to a gorge in, in Oregon. I believe it's the Columbia River Gorge. And um, he left her body there and, you know, he just went on. And then the crazy thing that ended up happening, though, there was a woman named Laverne Pavlinak. And she was in a relationship with this guy named John, John Sosnowski. Mm-hmm. And it was an abusive relationship, and she wanted to get rid of him, basically. <laughs> that, that's kind of, that was her goal in doing this. So she had read about this murder in the newspaper, covered in local news, and she thought, well, why don't I try and pin it on my boyfriend? And that way, they would take him to jail, and she would be free of him. Right. So this whole thing spiraled now into like her telling the police this, giving like this like false confession. And I mean, it's a really long, intricate case. But what ended up happening, long story short, they end up getting convicted for this murder that Jefferson was responsible for. Okay. That's where I was. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, how lucky for him. Right. So he's looking at this in the news thinking, wow. 
I really got away with this, you know? Do people want to go to prison? Let them, right? That was his way of, like, thinking about it. So he went on as a truck driver, continued to kill. And once his last victim was actually someone that he knew was um, a woman he had been involved with. So he became, you know, it was easy, I guess, to figure out he was responsible for it. And then that's when he, you know, had the idea, you know, I should try and free these innocent people from prison. Mm. um, Okay. He was thinking of doing that long before that. I mean, he was sending letters to the newspapers, to the press. He was sending letters to them um, admitting to his guilt, but no one was taking him seriously. Oh, well, yeah. It became like one of those cases where like the police, like they were like, we we have our people, we're not wrong. And, you know, we're not going to listen to anything else. And you know what, Maria, that's a whole other dynamic that I would love to talk to a policeman or a police department or whoever I get a hold of. Because I do think that there are situations where Everybody wants the killer, whether it's the right one or not. Not, I don't think that happens all the time. I think it happens a decent amount of time. And I do think that um, we found him. We've done our job. We're the best. Let it lie. And don't mess with us because we were not wrong. And that's not good. Yeah, I mean, it just shows how deeply flawed our justice system is. So, like, I became, like, as he's telling me this, and I've been, like, interviewing him specifically about this case. So there's, like, a three-part series on my website about this. And I've become, like, so invested where, like, I started writing. I'm in the process right now of writing an article about wrongful conviction, specifically about this case. So, like, I've been interviewing, like, some other people involved in this like that was kind of become like I dealt with way deeper than like what I had intended but in a way I'm kind of glad that I did because it's really fascinating and it's something that should not be pushed under the rug like these are cases that need to be brought to light and people need to recognize that these things happen and how are we going to prevent them yeah absolutely I totally agree with you and it sounds like with Keith Jefferson he just decided, well, I've done it once. And I think sometimes when they get the taste of it, they just kind of think, well, I got away with it and I have a taste for it. So now I'm not saying it was fun for him, but it might've been a rush in a, in a whole different way he's never had before. Yeah. I mean, he kind of liked the idea from what he's described, like not so much the act of killing. It's like the idea of getting away with it. Right. Right. You I'm know? smarter than you. Let me ask you this. When you would visit them in prison, either um, Maxim Gelman or um, Keith Jefferson, what was it like there for them? Did you actually talk to them about their conditions there at the in the prisons? Um, well, Max, yeah, I mean, Keith, not so much. Um, I never met Keith in person. I just speak to him over the phone. Okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, Max, I've, you know, like, we've talked about the conditions in the prison before and whatnot. I I was just wondering because, you know, is he always shackled? Does he get any um, time to go outside? I mean, with his kind of conviction, you know, with his kind of conviction, I didn't know what kind of schedule he had during that. Can can he work? Can he do other things? Yeah, Max, he is allowed out of his cell uh, multiple times a day. So right now, I mean, he does have a, a porter job and he so he's out of his cell you know he's able to use the phone in the morning and sometimes in the afternoon and then in the evening so he's not locked down all day you know he's allowed out you know in the yard a couple times or just like in his company I guess that's what it's called his company area right wow I am so impressed that you are doing this and I mean, I don't think any of us really truly understand, but I know what it's like to get angry and and act impulsively, not quite to that level, but you know, we've all been there and done that. And 
you know, what is the difference in their heads that make them go so far as to kill people when you and I, as normal people, would never even dream of doing that. And that's the difference, obviously, between us and them. So I want my listeners to know everything about you, especially if they want to know more about your website, Beyond the Crime, the book you've written. Tell my listeners where they can find you and all your information. Okay, so... My website is beyondthecrime.com, so you could find me there, and I also have, you know, the Facebook and the Instagram, so you could always find me there for Beyond the Crime. Okay. Um, my book is not out yet. My book is forthcoming, so my book on Max, I'm hoping yeah. <laughs> the end of the year, maybe by next year. I mean, I, I do have a complete manuscript. It's just a matter of now getting it published, so right. I do have someone, you know, representing me and all that, so Absolutely. you know what? It, COVID really slowed everything down. Oh, I can totally understand that. And I've written eight paranormal romance novels myself. I totally understand that whole process. So I get it, girl. But no, if you've got somebody representing you, absolutely. Um, I can't wait. I may have to grab it when it comes out next year because you, well, it's just so fascinating to me. I interviewed a man who preps people for prison. He was convicted of a federal crime when he helped open one of those overdosing pill places that pop up and they overdose um, opiates and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. He knew it was shady and not moralistically right, but he wasn't sure about how bad it was as far as against the law because, you know, there were actual legitimate doctors prescribing these drugs. And, well, he found out really fast. He went to federal prison. He didn't know what it was getting into. He didn't know anything about it. And now he has his own business prepping people for prison. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, and I interviewed him and he told me all about some of the conditions that he lived in and and it was just fascinating to me. So I am thrilled to have been able to talk to you and I might even contact you again because there's other questions I could have asked you. So, but no, thank you so much, Maria, for coming on my podcast. And like I said, I will put... Well, I will put all of your information on my show notes below. So anybody that is interested in looking at her blog, it's crazy fascinating. You'll get to look at an actual handwritten letter. She actually scanned it and put it on her website of Keith Jefferson's confession. And it's and phone interviews too. I do have phone interviews up there as well. Oh, yes, so I yes. record them. Yes. It, they're just fascinating. So anybody that wants to listen to those, hop on our website. And like I said, I'll put a, a link. And Maria, thank you so much for joining me today. You have been fascinating. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review. It'll help my podcast out and more people will be able to listen. Also, I am a novelist and write paranormal romance. All my books are available on Amazon.com, so check me out. And you can also reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you guys all for your support, and I'll talk to you next week.